Hello, and welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. How are you, Gary? I'm very good. How are you? I am absolutely splendid on this fine, fine afternoon slash evening. We're definitely going to see the transition for you. You can see outside. It's going to be about 15 minutes because it's in, no, yeah, about 15 minutes for Ireland. It's just going to go, <clears throat> sun's going to go across the horizon completely black you won't be able to see anybody in the dm so yeah it'll be fun um but anyway we're not here to talk about the weather in ireland or england we are here to talk about where your health focus should be um because we've been covering a few different things related to health in the last few episodes and it can kind of seem uh, a little bit disjointed because there's so many things that you could potentially be doing there's so many things that you're like oh like should I be uh, focusing on doing this habit or this thing? Like what's the, the highest priority thing now, realistically, it's all of them. You, you kind of, uh, it's not an a la carte menu. It's like, you just have to, you have to do everything. Now that's annoying in a way, but it is what it is. You know, it's the, I don't make the rules, you know, it's just, this is the, the nature of living on earth as a living organism. Um, but we can still stratify our risk and stratify our thinking on this, I suppose you'd say. And to do that, we kind of need to know what our, or who our enemy is, I suppose you would say, right? Um, but before we get into that in particular, and we will cover you know, some of the major causes of death for humans, um, but before we get into that, we actually kind of need to just have a a little bit of a step back and think about where is or what is our role in the overall healthcare system, right? And that can be a little bit strange if you are, you know, not a doctor, like Gary's training to be a doctor. So he can see, oh, I have a clear role in the healthcare system because I am going to be a doctor, blah, blah, blah. Doctors do this in the healthcare system, right? And even as something like a, a personal trainer, you might be like, okay, personal trainers have a role in the healthcare system because quite often they're the first point of contact that someone has to a health professional when they're in their adult years you know like I always say to people I'm like yeah a doctor sees someone about heart disease in their 30s 40s 50s whereas I see someone in their teens 20s 30s and can potentially help them before they ever even see the doctor you know so whether you believe it or not or whether you think it or not if you are a personal trainer you do have a role to play in the healthcare system right but the vast majority of people listening to this are not personal trainers you know they might just be interested individuals uh, or interested yeah, interested individuals in health and fitness and this kind of stuff, right? So where should your focus be and where should you view your role in the healthcare system? And this is something that you really need to be aware of because I've just been using the term healthcare system. But what we talk about as a healthcare system is often the medical care system, right? Or the medical system. And they're not the same thing. Healthcare and medical care are not the same thing. Medical care is a subsection of healthcare. My healthcare encompasses what you do as well as what the medical system does, right? And I should say it also encompasses what your government does, what your like non-government uh, bodies do, you know? It, en- it encompasses all of that stuff. So healthcare is more encompassing than just medical care, right? So you need to have that thought process in your mind that whether you like it or not, you are part of the healthcare system. Right. Um, and for example, a, a good example of this is, you know, America has a great medical care system. Right. Now you can argue about the, the access to it and the, the money stuff, but the actual quality of care that you get 
phenomenal next next level you know it's the best in the world um in terms of you know, well, it, it, a lot of reasons it's the best in the world and a lot of uh what would you say particulars uh, about it make it the best medical care system in the world however on a societal level healthcare in america is pretty poor you know really high heart rate or heart disease rate really high obesity rate really poor overall diet pattern really poor overall sleeping patterns really poor overall lifestyle in general right so their medical care might be phenomenal but it still groans under the weight of the fact that the healthcare system as a whole including what the individuals do what the government does etc they're not supporting health right so we want to have a role in helping health right so you as an individual you fit into the healthcare system and where you fit into it we generally a triage we always think of it as like the healthcare system has these like three stu- three-legged stool if you will right and you've got preventative stuff right prevention and then you've got treatment and this is commonly what people think of as medical care right and then you've got actual care like long-term care right and that oftentimes is also lumped in with medical care like you have people in a hospital that realistically what they need is a home they need somewhere to be that has like yeah medical care attached to it but it's really they just need someone to care for them for the last few years of their life or for the last few years of the disease that they have or whatever it is right um i'm I'm sure gary you can speak to this a bit more because you know about treatment and care more but what we talk about generally on this podcast is more in line with the preventative stuff right because that's where as a society as you know government organizations that's where you actually have the most power now it's a little bit tricky and we'll, we'll talk about why because you know treatment is the one that gets all the money because if you break your arm you're going to be like well i want to get my arm fixed you know i'm not going to think about stuff in the past that i could have done to potentially strengthen my bones you're going to be like my bone is broken right now i need care i need treatment and then care after that you know um but anyway gary what are your thoughts on that kind of model of the the three-legged stool and then also on generally talking about healthcare and medical care yeah, the way I would like to break this down is by viewing overall healthcare, the management and intervention thereof, as being a spectrum. Okay, so at the very bottom of healthcare, what you've got is published information that can be used by the end user if they wish. Okay, so for example, if you go to the NHS website, you go to the HSE website, you go to the CDC any of these governmental um, health websites, you will find very useful information, okay? You'll, you'll be told similar things that you'll be told by personal trainers when you go on Instagram. You know, they'll tell you how much you should be exercising. They'll tell you, you know, how many servings of fruit and veg to eat, what foods you should eat more of, less of, etc. You know, what you need to do if you, need, if you want to modify your weight. All that information is there. It's published by these governmental bodies, but it's totally your decision and on your will, whether or not you act on it and to what degree you're going to. And clearly that's a very low level intensity intervention. Okay. It's better to have the information there or not, but it's not very clear how much of an impact that has. Is that really where people go for their information? How many people are going to use it? Is it more likely that the people that will use it are already healthier rather than those who might need it most, etc. So at that very bottom of kind of uh, healthcare, if we consider the, the, the broad role, we're just talking about people using information that's there. 
And that's sort of around the level of healthcare where personal trainers start to get involved and have quite a positive effect. Because if you think of published information by the HSE, okay, it's still quite difficult to act on that. We all know that it's the implementation of these behaviors over long periods of time, which is what's required for significant reductions in risk and benefits of those behaviors, that is the difficult part. It's not the knowledge itself. You know, you can go on the HSE website and you'll have one page on nutrition that if you were to follow it, like, yeah, you'd probably be in pretty good health, but it's the implementation of that that's quite difficult. So where personal trainers and nutritionists, et cetera, come into the picture there is by helping people apply that information, whether that be through their own systems that they use to um, apply weight training or get people to do their cardio or get people to follow a meal plan or whatever it happens to be, um, or even just for accountability, support, guidance, et cetera. That's where we come in, okay? Now, as you move upwards, you're going to have personal trainers that maybe- Before you actually go up there, like a classic example of the, the one you were just talking about is, you know, the government publishes a food pyramid or a my plate or whatever, yeah. and then a personal trainer or an individual is basically going, oh, how do I actually put this into my life or my client's life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So what you're doing there is, as the end user of healthcare there, is you're saying, okay, I know that the information is available, um, I could potentially use it myself, but I would benefit from expert guidance. I feel that if I use the information as guided by this person, I'll get better results, okay? So that's the ideal. That's the position where the personal trainer comes in. And best case scenario there is that you bring that person up to that more intensive level of intervention, personal training even. That's what you're doing. And let's say you do that for six months, and then that person goes back down the ladder of intervention to where they're now just using information themselves again because they've benefited from their interaction with personal training or the healthcare system. As you go up, you'll have personal trainers who maybe have more specialized practices. Maybe you have a personal trainer who specializes in pre or, or postnatal um, training, or it might be that a personal trainer happens to have studied physio before and intervenes on people who have injuries okay so you might have personal trainers that exist on that low end of the spectrum now as you move upwards of course the other end of the spectrum is going to be something like intensive care for example where you are totally 100 percent dependent on the technology and the healthcare professionals that are involved in your care and if that care was withdrawn, life would end. Okay, that's clearly the most extreme example is intensive care. So you might have, um, you're on a ventilator, you're on various uh, medications, you might be on antibiotics because your immune system isn't doing its job and you need to get rid of these bugs and you might be on um, adrenaline and various drugs to regulate your blood pressure because you're not able to do it yourself anymore. So you are very dependent on the healthcare system at that point in time. And that's the most intensive point of intervention. And between the two ends of that spectrum, there are many different places where we come in. Clearly, the personal trainer is playing that preventative role. But doctors also play a preventative role. Okay, So if you think about something like um, blood pressure, okay, we generally don't worry about blood pressure as being a disease in its in of itself okay but rather what it causes down the line 
So if you're screening for blood pressure and intervening on blood pressure as a GP, for example, that's still preventative healthcare because what you're doing is you're trying to prevent stroke, heart failure, um, et cetera, down the line. Okay, so that's the goal. Similarly, if you're assessing blood lipids, cholesterol, and intervening on that, that's still preventative because it's going to potentially lead to increased risk of cardiovascular disease down the line. So you can see that that preventative role is not just about what the person does themselves at home, but also what they're being screened for. You know, are they, um, have they attended the, their cervical screening, um, breast cancer screening, lung cancer screening, maybe if they're a smoker, colon cancer screening, etc. All those things that we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, where you have to consider your own individual risks, family risks, environmental risks, etc. All of that is encompassed within that kind of preventative spectrum. And it's when, when you experience then some sort of event or insult or acute uh, disease or illness, that's when we really move towards more along the treatment end of the spectrum. An example would be, right, you were previously engaging with your GP in a preventative capacity, right? And your personal trainer maybe in preventative capacity where you were doing cardio exercise, you were modifying your nutrition, you were taking um, a statin to reduce your, your um, cholesterol levels, and then you still had a heart attack, okay? So now you're being treated acutely for that, you know? So you're, you have to go into the hospital, it's more of an emergency situation, you have to receive certain medications, and before they let you go again, they have to make sure that you are um, out of that state and that you now have an update in your care going forward. So you might need now more intensive preventative healthcare because it might be more important that you get your blood lipids in control even more. You might need to change medications, up the dose of a medication, etc. So you've, you've been treated, but you're now more further along that spectrum towards the, the treatment end where your preventative healthcare has now been escalated, okay? And then of course, as someone gets older in particular, and if it's uh, in certain types of illnesses, for example, advanced Alzheimer's disease, motor neuron disease, et cetera, diseases that are progressive and can limit your day-to-day -day life greatly, that's where long-term care starts to come into things, where now your, your life as a whole might be some degree of an interaction with the healthcare system, whether it be um, some sort of uh, nursing home or long-term care facility where you have access to healthcare professionals in some capacity, and that's actually where you're living your life because of the, the disease that you've been suffering with. So yeah, that covers, I think, most of, of what I consider when I think of that spectrum from the very low level of intervention, preventative, all the way up to the very high level of intervention. You think of the ICU, and then also that element of care that's involved as well. Yeah, and it's important to understand it because this is why we're spending so much time talking about it. We're really going to be talking about the major killers of humans because you have to realize, you actually have to use this framework to realize that you are a part of the healthcare system. Like you are a part of that preventative healthcare system, right? Or preventative leg of the pre-stooled healthcare system, right? Because if you don't realize that, you can just be like, oh, well, like I'll just, you know, follow what everybody's doing and what everybody's doing is leading to disease and we'll talk about that in a second and um, so you can't really do that and you have to really 
like flick a switch in your mind and go, no, actually, I need to think of myself as a healthcare professional, whether you're an individual listening to this, whether you're a personal trainer, whether you're a doctor, whether you're whatever listening to this, you need to almost think of yourself as a healthcare professional. And the person that you're caring for is yourself, right? And potentially your family as well, especially if you're, you know, doing their cooking and whatever, you know? Um, And it's important to understand that of all of the things that we could potentially focus on, and you may or may not agree with this, Gary, of all the things that we could focus on, prevention is probably better than cure in a lot of cases. Like, I'm not going to say prevention is better than cure in the case of, again, like breaking your arm or something. I'm not going to be like someone comes in with a broken arm and be like, oh, should have eaten more calcium, bro. You know, like that's that's obviously not helpful. And even if they had done all of those things, weight bearing exercises, et cetera, it still doesn't mean that they wouldn't have broken their leg because they were in a car accident, <laughs> you know? Um, so in most cases, however, especially when we're talking about uh, a lot of the non-communicable diseases, like non-spreadable diseases, not like, you know, the flu or whatever, a lot of those things, and even with some of the communicable diseases, we should say, prevention is generally better than cure. And there's some areas that the overall medical system would also agree, you know, this is why they give flu shots every year. It's not because they're like, oh, a flu shot is going to cure the flu that you have right now. It's like, no, if we give you a flu shot this year, hopefully you don't get ill, you don't get the flu, or if you do get it, you're able to deal with it much better and you're not going to be sick then, you're not going to require treatment, right? However, in other situations, prevention is just ignored. It's not really focused on a huge amount, especially for some of the major killers, which we'll talk about in a second, right? Um, But prevention, that's the realm that we fall in. And, you know, the way we kind of think, especially when we're communicating to you guys listening to this, um. And we obviously think that prevention is probably a better place to focus on than cure. Now, we have the ability to say that because, you know, we're in this realm and we're like, oh, yeah, focus on prevention. If you were talking about your fucking, I don't know, your mother had Alzheimer's and you're like, oh, I'm actually going to take money away from the care and the treatment stuff. And I'm actually going to allocate some of that money towards preventative stuff in the hope that people in the future won't get Alzheimer's or won't get any of these other diseases. Like that's a pretty hard fucking sell, you know, <laughs> like, and this is the thing. Like if we had a situation where we had unlimited money, oh, happy days, you know, we can allocate as much money as we want to prevention, right? However, we don't. So what are we actually going to focus our time and efforts on and our, our resources on? We're probably going to focus on the stuff that is immediate, you know, humans aren't well, we are and we aren't. Humans aren't great long-term planners, right? Like we are the best of all the animals in the world, I would you know, argue. We're great long-term planners. Um, but we also really focus on what is immediate. What's the immediate threat right here and now? You know, all animals do that. Humans are no different. And when you see someone going like, oh, we need more money for, I don't know, more defibrillators, more uh, equipment, more ICU beds, more whatever. Like you're going to go, oh, well, we need that money spent there now. You're not thinking, oh, well, if I kept 10% of the overall budget and I allocated it towards preventative stuff in the community, you know, maybe interact with more with like nutritionists or, you know, uh, community helpers, whatever you want to call them, whatever like role you want to assign them, the people that go around and actually help people in the community not get heart disease, exercise, do all the stuff that we've been talking about, even like financial planning, all of that stuff, like it's a hard sell. It's not like uh, you could easily sell that as a, a politician or you could easily sell it even as a, a medical professional. I know obviously like medical professionals don't exactly get to assign 
money. They don't go, oh, this is where your money is going to go. Um, and a lot of doctors would probably be in agreement that they're seeing people come in time and time again with the same issues. And they're fucking frustrated because they're like, these are preventable, preventable issues, you know? But what are your thoughts on, on that, Gary, in terms of allocating our resources? Yeah, I think the, the really difficult thing here um, and it's, it's to, I suppose, differentiate between the allocation of, of attention, for example, as an end user um, or your own funds and the allocation of resources from government budget, let's say, directed towards healthcare. Because there's the, the really difficult thing about funding preventative efforts, like if we think about that as meaning how one lives, you know, lifestyle, nutrition, exercise, etc., is that there's effectively no guarantee, okay? So you could fund all of these options for people to attend personal trainers, um, options for people to engage with nutritionists, make uh, places more um, accessible to, for walking and exercise and that type of thing. And the end user still might not engage with it, okay? So some people will, but it's not so clear um, what you're getting for a return on investment. Whereas classic example, food pyramid again, you you can spend all the money you want being like, Oh, this is how we're going to design the diet. This is how we think an optimal diet should be. And look, we're not, you know, huge advocates of being like, Oh, the food pyramid is perfect or anything, but it's also not what people are doing. You know? So you spent all this money on preventative stuff. You've created this food pyramid. You've even created different services around that to help people, you know, adjust their diet towards that. And then people still don't interact with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas, if you were to, if you take that money and I don't know, let's any example. Okay. Let, let's say you buy more ICU beds with that, or you buy extra ventilators for a hospital, or you hire another surgeon in the hospital or something along those lines. There's very easy to measure outcomes from that. Okay. Because the medication it, it, it's been studied. All that's been done. You're just giving it to someone. So it's going to work if that person is sick or an ICU bed, someone needs it and it's not available they're probably going to die so they need that you know and these these types of things are if you think of if you're thinking of healthcare from like just you being the person that actually has to make the call how you're going to allocate limited resources it's really difficult actually to say you know what actually we will take money away from those types of investments and allocate it to more efforts in prevention because it's not always clear what you're going to get um, in return And of course, you can obviously study this and and assess um, the impact, but you've just got this really, really messy interplay between um, one, you know, will and willpower. Okay, people obviously will will say things like, oh, it's not it's not your willpower. We've discussed this at great length before. It's it's the environment, et cetera. But clearly there's an element of willpower that matters in in all practical um, senses of our uses of the world or uses of the word. Someone has to make the decision to engage with particular information or to visit a personal trainer or whatever it happens to be. There's that part of it that's messy. There's always the food environment. You know, it might be that you're, you could actually get a better return on investment by regulating the amount of salt that could be in a given hundred grams of food. You know, that, that, if, that would, if you made that massive political effort to intervene um, in the food supply, that could actually be far better than um, giving people the option of um, interacting with salt information leaflets or videos and ads that are being paid to be on RT every evening on 
how, how to reduce salt, you know, the much easier thing to do is to go upstream, say, uh, Nestle and all these food production companies, you're not allowed to have more than a gram of salt in hundred grams of food. And then it's like, okay, well now we have to reformulate our, all our products and population blood pressure is going to come down because people don't have options and they're not actually doing anything from a willpower perspective, so to speak. So there's the difficult questions. And to be honest, we don't really have an answer. You know, our bias is obviously towards um, preventative healthcare. And I think from a, a, an end user perspective, I think everyone should be taking the responsibility to exercise and look after their nutrition to the best of their ability. That ability will vary, but that's, that's kind of like my, my bias. I recognize the limitations of that perspective, but when I think about it myself, about managing my own health, or when my family asks me questions about health, that's ultimately where I'm going first is how can you change your lifestyle? Like you've got, you've got the information available, you know what to do with it. Now, how are we going to implement that? And personal trainers, nutritionists, etc., can be really, really helpful at that level because it's all the different coaching practices that we use to get people to um, improve their health long term actually stick with people, like getting their steps up, like uh, finding those strategies to remove inactive periods in their day or easy ways to get in more fruits and vegetables if you're not eating them and mm. so on and so on. Yeah, and this is like, I don't want to be like, oh, holier than thou or whatever. Like we should all just focus on the preventative stuff. Like, first of all, the government has an awful job of having to actually do this. Like it's so tough and it's not like they're not doing it. Like they put like chlorine in the water, for example, like that's a preventative thing. So people aren't fucking dying of Giardia or fucking whatever other uh, waterborne diseases and whatever else. Now there's certain parts of both England and Ireland that still have poor water conditions, et cetera. But overall, like they are still putting money towards different efforts. Now you can argue as, again, like you said, the end user would be like, oh, well, they should put efforts here or this is where the efforts should be or X, Y, and Z. But they have a hard job of allocating the money as is. And some of it is just, you know, they don't know necessarily where is going to be the most impactful place to, you know, pay money towards. And then also there's certain issues around, um, you know, where they can do stuff without uh, political unity, shall we say, you know, like certain people will be like, oh yeah, or certain political parties be like, this is an intervention we like, whereas there's other political parties like, oh no, we don't like those types of interventions, you know? Um, so it, it's an impossible job, but we're not going to solve it here on this podcast. So we're going to kind of move on from that, but I just wanted people to be aware of prevention is probably better than cure and the reason we say that because depending on where you look 25 to 40 percent of deaths are preventable again that's depending on the source you look at depending on the country we're talking about but either way 25 to 40 percent of deaths are preventable now look humans have to die at some stage so technically speaking like 100% of deaths are going to occur, <laughs> you know, although there is a non-zero probability that this is the universe that I live forever. So I'm holding out, you know, uh, hope for that. Um, but overall, 25 to 40%, again, depending on where we look, they are preventable. So we want to focus on the preventable stuff, right? And just to end, give some context for all of this stuff to give you some numbers in terms of how governments are allocating their funding towards preventative stuff, um, according to Eurostat data, right, on average in the EU, public and private expenditure on preventative healthcare accounted for 2.8% of total health expenditure in 2018, with the highest shares recorded in Italy and Finland. 
right? Italy was at 4.4% of health expenditure and Finland was at 4%, right? In contrast, the lowest share of preventative, preventive, can I speak, preventive care expenditure was recorded in Slovakia with 0.8% of total health expenditure, followed by Greece, Cyprus, and Malta, all of them are at 1.3%, and then Romania at 1.4%. Now, the UK, obviously, it's outside of the EU. Uh, the UK spends 5.1%, right? And it's the best in all of Europe, right? Now, Ireland ranks relatively lowly with a measly 2.6%, which is below the average of 2.8%, right? And it's basically half the UK allocation, right? So if you go from Ireland to England, right? You just move country like I did, right? You effectively are doubling the amount of money that is spent on you uh, relative to healthcare uh, expenditure just by that simple move, right? Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting everyone moves to the UK. I'm just giving numbers to kind of give you an idea of, okay, this is how much this government values this thing. Now, some of these numbers are, and some of the numbers I'm going to quote in a second, they are a little bit deceptive because obviously certain countries have bigger budgets, certain healthcare systems cost more. So it's not a perfect comparison to just compare these numbers, but it still gives you an overall idea of how much the government values these investments you know it's like oh it's only five percent right only five percent and that's the fucking highest right um so that is important to understand because again 25 to 40 percent of deaths are preventable and if you're only spending five percent of your healthcare cost on preventative stuff you're kind of missing the forest for the trees now am i saying that you should be spending 25 percent or 40 percent no not necessarily but either way i think myself and you gary would agree that five percent or if you're in Ireland, 2.6% is pretty fucking shocking, right? Um, now, what that looks like on a per person basis is slightly different, right? Um, and it's probably arguably, arguably more important for us as individuals, because I don't really care about the percentage. Like, that's fucking irrelevant for me. I want to know how much are they spending on me, right? Um, so the average EU investment was 82 euro per person, right? So keep that in mind, because that's the average. In Sweden... It's 165 per person, right? In Finland, it's 152. Germany, 148. The Netherlands, 146. Um, and then Romania and Slovakia, both again, they were noted as having poor ones. They're eight euro per inhabitant, which is pretty shocking when you compare it to the you know, higher versus lower numbers. And we just go Sweden is 165 and Romania is eight. You know, it's like, okay, that's pretty fucking shocking, right? In the UK, it's 185 euro, right? So again, the UK are paying a lot of money per person in a preventative healthcare setting, right? Uh, in Ireland, it's only 120 euro, right? So pretty poor as well. Now it's not down at Romania or Slovakia levels of poor, but it's still pretty poor, right? Now Switzerland is at the top with 219 euro, right? However, again, this number can be deceiving due to actual healthcare and living costs. Like Switzerland is a pretty fucking expensive country. You know, you've been to Switzerland, I've been to Switzerland. Beautiful. It's a beautiful country, no doubt. And it is also rigged to explode in case the Germans ever try to invade. All the bridges, they're just gone. No no taking over that country. They also don't care. They're, they're like the exact uh, opposite to Ireland in a neutral country, which is fantastic. You know, it's like, oh, Ireland are neutral and defenseless. Switzerland are neutral and they will fucking destroy you which is love their guns as well. Yeah, exactly. Like you love to see it, but anyway, that's beside the point. You get the idea, you know, preventative spending is not, is not huge. 
You know, it's not like you're getting a huge investment on your health in a preventative capacity, right? So what can we do in a preventative capacity? What should we focus on? Where should our attention be? Because that's the, the whole point of this episode. Where should our attention be? Well, we're going to really just caveat this, first of all, by saying, first of all, baseline health practices. We discussed them in the last two episodes, I think it was. So go back, listen to those two. If you're not doing those things, like that's where your attention should be. You know, those things transcend and they have their little greasy fingers in every single pie, right? So you need to do your baseline healthcare practices. Yeah, there's some of the more foundational or pillar ones of, you know, eat well, sleep, exercise, stress management, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But some of the other ones you might not have thought of before, right? Then we can also do stuff like risk stratification. You know, what do people in your family die slash get sick from? What do people in your area die slash get sick from? What do people in your career die slash get sick from? Uh, What is more likely for you, given all the stuff that you know about yourself? Are any of these preventable? Like there's certain diseases that you're like, okay, well, this is not necessarily preventable. So you can't really do anything on it, right? Um, Are there things you can be doing now to prevent future disease or illness? Again, heart disease is a classic example. Now you might be like, Oh, well, I'm not, I don't have heart disease now, so I don't need to focus on this stuff. However, as you'll see, when we talk about the, the debt rates and the debt numbers, you'll see that, Oh, this is something that happens as you age because of what you did earlier in life. Right? So then ultimately the reason we're doing this is so you're not wasting time focusing on stuff that is less likely to happen. You're not focusing on some random potential killer of humans when it has no relevance for you as an individual, right? We want to focus on the high yield items. We want to focus on the things that are really important for our overall health, right? Now, before we get stuck into the major killers, and I don't mean serial killers, um, do you have anything to say on the above? Um, I think we covered, you know, a lot of this in the, in the last episode. I think the most important thing that I'd just like to emphasize is, is really trying to make it individual, okay? So worry about the things that you feel you might be at greatest risk for. Because one of the worst things you can do is try to prevent absolutely everything. And of course, that's a, it's, it's a, a noble desire. You know, it's great that you want to look after your health, but you can't mitigate every risk. And the best thing you can do is protect yourself against those things that are more likely to happen. You know, I've got, as I said before, a good bit of cardiovascular disease in my family. That's something I should be, you know, more concerned about. No one in my family really, um, well, a little bit, but not so much. There's not much cancer in my family, thank God. So that's not something I'm like acutely aware of. Like I'm not acutely like worrying about colon cancer or something like that. Of course I could get it, but it's the, the heart disease that kind of rings those bells for me. And that might be different for you and your family and you and your baseline conditions. For example, um, you could have had poorly controlled asthma all your life, and that could be something that is potentially detrimental for you down the line. Or you might have a long history of, of smoking. You might have given them up now. Or maybe there's a lot of alcoholism in your family. All these different things lead you to your personal individual risk stratification. And that's the best way that you can allocate your efforts because that's you, how you know you're going to get the best return on investment. Yeah, 100%. And again, it's different for everyone. And also, you should focus on the high ticket items for you 
but that doesn't mean that you just completely ignore all the other things. Like say, for example, again, just using your example there, Gary, you're like, oh, heart disease is more relevant for you. So you're looking at heart disease. You're going, okay, what are the things that I need to be doing for heart disease? That doesn't mean that you just completely ignore all the habits for colon cancer. You know, you're like, oh, like I don't, I, I don't have to care about that stuff. Right now, as you'll see in the next episode, I think, um, a lot of these habits, they do actually overlap and you're kind of like, oh, well, this thing is protective here, but it's also protective here. Right. So while focusing on your heart disease stuff, you can still keep an eye to colon cancer risk related issues. You know, you might be like, okay, what are the big uh, things around colon cancer? Oh, I want to reduce red meat intake. Oh, I want to eat more fruit and vegetables, you know, more fiber. And you're like, okay, so I can still do those things. Oh, and they're actually potentially beneficial for my heart disease risk as well you know so it's not like you just have to ignore all the other ones however we're talking about uh brain energy allocation here we're like okay well what are we actually focusing on when we're focusing on health when we focus on our own individual health we have all of these different metrics that we can use to be like okay this is my risk stratification these are the things that are likely to kill me these are the things that i'm likely to get or potentially be exposed to and as a result of that i can actually talk i can create a better plan of action to overcome these based on the habits that I engage in, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So anyway, Gary, do you want to take it away and talk about the major killers of humans? And we have the data there from the global totals in 2019, according to the WHO, um, which everyone these days is familiar with the WHO because of the disease that was going around. Hopefully it's, you know, finishing up, trickling out, you know, fading away. Um, feels like you you guys in ireland you got your uh, freedom day the other day didn't you freedom yeah absolutely i went to i went to the cinema at 7 30 which meant i was in there until nine out past eight yeah baby because before that all the, la- the latest movies were like five or half five so if you work a reasonable job you're probably not getting to the cinema so that was very exciting you go for a rake of points Oh, absolutely. No, I did not. I did not. Might avail of that at some point, but no. The Belfast in the cinema was good enough for me. But um, yeah, one note on this, I suppose, is that the data we're using is from the World Health Organization in 2019. So naturally, we don't have COVID in here. But to be honest, we'll just ignore that for now and hope that that goes away. <laughs> Hopefully. Actually, just as an aside, the next one that I do have there, the data for is the 2020 data for America. So we will be bringing in but anyway go go through the uh global totals for 2019 i'm sorry this is just the thing just on these like we're going to be switching between global totals specific country totals age stratification etc etc but the reason we're doing this is because it is actually informative in terms of you can see how things are potentially trending but also you can see how things affect you at different stages of your life so anyway guys get stuck into those global totals yeah so like the the first one it probably isn't too surprising that ischemic heart disease cardiovascular disease in the way that we normally talk about it is responsible for the greatest amount of deaths okay so about 16 percent worldwide attributable to uh, heart disease so probably not surprising we talk about it all the time for a reason second one is very much related before you go on to that just again try to keep these numbers in mind 16 percent okay so 16 percent just think about you have 100 friends 16 of them die from heart disease yep uh stroke second about 11%. So again, the, the other important thing here is we'll think about the overall percentages, but think about how many of these diseases are also so interrelated, like ischemic heart disease and stroke, massive overlap there in risk factors. Okay. And that'll be a trend as we go down. 
6% then is COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Okay, that is something that you see very frequently. Smoking is a very strong risk factor. It's not always the case that smoking is the cause, but that is something that is quite important there. Um, so yeah, 6%. Again, there's some crossover there with heart disease as well, and that COPD can affect the heart and the vasculature and things like that. Um, lower res respiratory infections are the, third, are the fourth, um, which would be basically any sort of infection, like a, a pneumonia is what people would typically say, uh, which would be more of a communicable disease. So effectively, this is a disease that you are catching um, some sort of infection. And again, COVID would be part of that, but all other types of respiratory infections would be in there. Um, and that's all, that's some, as you, as you can see, it was the fourth leading cause of death in 2019. So they're still very, very relevant to these lower respiratory infections. It's not like COVID just came out of nowhere and suddenly their respiratory infections are a problem. It was always the case that they were, you know, quite lethal. And this is particularly the case for people who are hospitalized, people in nursing homes, elderly people, or people with previous respiratory conditions, for example, COPD, as we mentioned previously, these are the kind of big risk factors for someone succumbing to something like a respiratory infection because they're already in a vulnerable position. Yeah, and we have to also remember that these are global totals, right? So they're not specific countries. So you might be thinking, oh, well, I don't remember hearing of anyone dying of, I don't know, fucking tuberculosis in, in my estate, you know, <laughs> or whatever. But we have to remember this is across the globe, right? And you might go, oh, okay, so it's all just a you know, lower respiratory tract lower respiratory infections you know that's just a third world country or developing country thing to worry about and it's not really right especially if we included covid in that which you know you would um and also it is something that really puts the above four then into perspective because you're like oh well it's number four it's because of all the like the rest of the world causing these diseases or you know contributing to these diseases then you have to go oh well the heart disease stuff that's a global phenomenon right and even if it's a global phenomenon like a lot of the stuff is happening in the first world as well you know and um, but anyway gary move on to number five yeah so number five we've got neo neonatal conditions now unless you are listening to this <laughs> you've just been born at 32 weeks <laughs> we're probably not going to intervene on that okay um but it is just something that's worth noting obviously classically neonatal conditions would have been a very large contributor to all-cause mortality and that's one of the reasons we see such a great increase in life expectancy in developed countries these days is because of the eradication of um, death basically at the beginning of life okay so that's something that's quite important now next up we've got the uh, tracheal bronchial or bronchus and lung cancers which are sixth okay so these are basically all um, cancers related to the lungs and the respiratory system Obviously, smoking is a very significant risk factor here, but there are other types of cancers that will be slotted into that. You know, an example would be um, people who are exposed to occupational risk factors. Maybe you're around a lot of smoke in your job. You might have been around um, asbestos. You might have been around um, a lot of coal, dust, etc. All these things can increase risk. So we have seen a, a decrease um, in cancers related to those occupational risk factors, but you still do see some of them because they have long and the latency periods. Um, and thankfully, smoking has also been on the decline. So you'd hope that lung cancer um, will also reduce. But you can get lung cancer without being a smoker. It's still something to, to be aware of. And obviously, it goes without saying, don't smoke. 
Okay. Next up, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. So there are other forms of dementia, some related to, um, against some of the cardiovascular risk factors. So you've got vascular dementia and you've got other types of dementia that are related to kind of Parkinsonism symptoms, some rare ones, frontotemporal dementia, but Alzheimer's is kind of a group of similar enough conditions. Some people will tell you there's, you know, subgroups within that. Um, but yeah, dementia, dementia, seventh uh, leading cause of death there. Um, so yeah, again, the things that we'd be doing to prevent that would very much be in line with the recommendations that we've got for lots of other diseases. So that's kind of the good news. Diarrheal diseases are eighth. Okay, so you might really think of that as being a significant contributor, but particularly there in developing countries and in history in our own countries, um, diarrhea is something that can be very lethal, okay? Diabetes is ninth, okay, overall. Remember, this is worldwide. But remember also that diabetes shares very significant risk factors or crossover with your ischemic heart disease, stroke, kidney disease, etc. okay? Because if you've got type 2 diabetes, you're at risk of many other diseases, okay? But diabetes is a very significant contributor. It's also far more prevalent um, these days in developing nations, even type two diabetes in particular has been on the rise. So that's something that's kind of becoming more and more common worldwide, really. Um, that's one of the interesting points here is that although we obviously differentiate between what might be experienced in high versus low and middle income countries, it's becoming more and more homogenous over time because the food environment is becoming more homogenous. The way that we work is becoming more homogenous. So we're dealing with more of the same diseases as a result. And then finally, the 10th is kidney diseases, which are up from um, 13th previously. But note here as well that kidney disease is something that's very, again, heavily influenced by lots of the other conditions. So if you've got um, high blood pressure or you've got poorly controlled blood glucose from your diabetes, that can significantly impact your kidney health and can lead to the progression of these diseases. So there's huge overlap in terms of the relationship between all those different conditions. And the good news is that there are those shared things that you can control. Because if you're looking at your blood pressure, you're looking at your blood lipids, you're looking at your blood glucose, you're eating well, you're not smoking, you're not drinking alcohol, like you've significantly reduced your risk of the vast majority of those conditions before you ever, ever consider taking any medication or anything. Yeah, and I just want to add on to that as well, because we were just looking at global numbers there, right? So obviously not numbers, just global ranking. But for higher income countries, hypertensive heart disease is also up there, right? Colorectal cancer. And also I wanted to add in again, lower respiratory infections are still in the top 10 for developed nations or higher income countries as well. So it's not just a case of, oh, I don't have to focus on communicable diseases because we have modern medicine i'm in my you know cushy safe first world countries no you can still die from that right but it is important to understand that colorectal cancer is there and also hypertensive heart diseases hypertensive heart disease is there as well right and that obviously does feed into some of the other things especially around stroke especially around heart disease overall um but it is important to to understand right now when we go on to america right I've actually stratified these by the number of deaths, right? Um, and then ranked it as well, right? Because I think this puts a little bit of a clearer figure on it because while we've been talking about a few percentages here and there, we've just been ranking in you know numerical order. I think when you actually think in numbers, um, it actually helps a little bit. Now, we do also run the risk of just 
thinking in numbers and not thinking of humans, right? You know, what is it? Uh, was it Stalin that said that about like, you know, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, something like that, um, which is fucking grim, but it does hold true because people see these numbers and then they're like, oh uh, yeah, that's, that's a big number, you know? But you have to remember, there's a face to every single one of those numbers, right? That's your, your auntie, your uncle, your brother, your sister, your fucking children, you know, like these, these are people that you know, Okay. Um, but anyway, so in 2020 in America, according to the CDC, um, because America is actually fantastic at providing data because they have great healthcare, uh, or sorry, I should say great medical care. Um, the NHS is also fantastic for getting data. Ireland is fucking shocking, right? In case anyone ever wants to do a study, they're like, oh, I wonder if I could like compare numbers and I'm going to use Ireland as a number. Nah, like some of the things I was looking up, the latest data in Ireland was like 2019, 2017. I'm like, bro, like get the fucking finger out, you know? <laughs> like what the fuck is five years ago? <laughs> but anyway, uh, so uh, America in 2020, which remember we had something happen in 2020, which was not enjoyable for the vast majority of us. Um, heart disease, 696,962 deaths, right? Now, obviously heart disease is a broad category there, but either way, basically the guts of 700,000 people there. Right. So that's quite a fucking lot of people. I don't know if you, about you, but 700,000 people is quite a lot of people. Right. Now, obviously, America does have, you know, what is it, 33 million people as a population, something like that, or 330 million as a population. I was like, 33 million. I was like, that's fuck all. And uh, 330 million uh, as their overall population, somewhere in or around there. So you can go, okay, that's not a huge amount given their entire population. However, it is still. Again, a face to every one of those numbers. Cancer then, we've got 602,350, right? So just over 600,000. So pretty big. Now, again, cancer is a broad category. So a lot of things fall within that. COVID-19, number three on the list of killers of 2020, right? Take a guess, Gary. I know you can see the figures, but what would you have guessed before looking at them? I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I think around 300,000. Yeah, the number is 350,831 people, okay? So that's a lot of people, right? Now, you might be looking at this, again, hindsight. You know, some people are like, oh, COVID's absolutely fucking nothing. You know, you might have said that at the time. You know, for a lot of people, it was nothing. You know, it wasn't a huge issue. Like, I had COVID twice. You had COVID. You had COVID twice as well, didn't you? I definitely had it once, maybe a second time, but I think just once. <laughs> But either way, you know, so it's like for some people, it's a fucking breeze. Like I had no symptoms either time, you know, however, fucking 350,000 people died from it. Right. So I wanted to bring that up, not to just fucking flex on my you know, immune system, but I wanted to bring that up because some of these things are also just pure fucking bad luck. Now, some of this maybe could have been prevented. You know, some of it was because we didn't know how to treat it in the hospitals, et cetera. Like there was a whole, there's a whole lot more story to that number. But I want you to be thinking on an individual basis, you might not be at risk for certain diseases, but you still have to do certain things to protect yourself from those diseases. 
right? You might be like, oh, like this, whatever, we talk about whatever one's going forward. You might be like, that's not something that I have to focus on. I've done my risk stratification. It's not a high priority. Like for me, I did my risk stratification. I'm like, COVID-19 doesn't seem like it's going to be an issue for me. wasn't an issue for me. I'm like, okay, so my risk stratification was okay. But I still did good health habits that lended to being able to, you know, survive COVID-19 if it was a bad thing for me. For example, I have health insurance, you know, and you'd be surprised. That's actually fucking important if you have a, a deadly disease that you need to go to the hospital for, you know? Um, but anyway, 350,831 people, right? Accidents then are the next one, unintentional injuries, okay? And we've touched on this before. We've talked about it in one of the previous episodes. Like this is actually a pretty big killer. And you might've noticed that it wasn't actually on the list of the top killers in the world overall. But in America, 200,000. Now, this is also because, you know, sometimes in other countries, these are not, we just don't have records for it. They could be fucking much higher, you know? Um, but accidents, 200,955, right? That's pretty big. A lot of those are car accidents. A lot of them are, you know, just general accidents that led to death and whatever else. Um, stroke um, or cerebrovascular disease, uh, 160,264. And again, I don't want to just rush through these numbers, but you can get, you're getting the picture here that a lot of people are dying each year from these different diseases in America. However, I also want to just reiterate that heart disease was 700,000, you know, just below 700,000, right? Um, chronic lower respiratory diseases, 152,657. So again, even though COVID was fucking ravaging the world, you know, people are still dying from lower respiratory diseases right now. These are chronic ones. COVID, you could argue, is more of an acute one, but either way, <clears throat> there's still disease there, right? Alzheimer's disease, 134,242. Again, a lot of people dying from that. Yeah, quite a lot. Maybe you can talk to that a little bit more in terms of like how people die from Alzheimer's disease, because I don't think that's quite as clear oftentimes, but I'll just finish up these ones. Uh, diabetes, 102,188. Influenza and pneumonia, 53,544. And that number is probably down because of COVID deaths. You know, some of the population that would have died of influenza or pneumonia, maybe they got COVID. So those numbers are a little bit mixed, but either way, people are still dying from those stuff. And then we've got nephritis, nephrotic syndrome, and nephrosis. So we can talk about like kidney related stuff, 52,547, right? So we just wanted to put some numbers to those figures but also just give you a little bit of a ranking in terms of america what they're dealing with in terms of their top killers um of humans do you want to say on that lord skinny guys no i think um again as you'll have expected the there's a lot of crossover there between the causes of death in america and the causes of death worldwide you know and we'd be very similar in ireland to what would be prevalent in america so as per the last episode, you know, and as per the points I made previously, pick out those things that you think might be um, of greatest risk for you and uh, address accordingly. Now, obviously, the, you asked about the, the Alzheimer's question. It mightn't be so obvious why a patient with Alzheimer's would die um, because it's not necessarily directly related to the disease process, but, but related. And often it's, it's that someone will die as a result of pneumonia or some sort of other um, illness that is going along with Alzheimer's disease because you can get features that are related to other organs in the body too. Um, so, you know, that's kind of one of the complicated things about 
um, attributing cause of death. And this is something that caused a great deal of controversy during the pandemic because you had a lot of people who were opining on the, you know, where why COVID-19 was on a death certificate, for example, and what it means for something to be a cause of death, you know, whereas it's not, to, it's not the case that there's always a single cause of death, but rather that there are different things in that chain of causes. You know, for example, someone might have Alzheimer's disease and they might be living alone and they might be feeding, feeding appropriately or um, not washing themselves, not getting out of bed, etc. And that could potentially lead to them getting a pneumonia and dying. And the Alzheimer's disease was still very much related. Similarly, someone could have a heart attack and that heart attack could um, lead to uh, decreased functioning in the heart afterwards, decreased perfusion of the kidneys and kidney failure, which eventually leads to the person dying. Or it might be that the person's in um, the hospital with cancer and they're immunosuppressed and they pick up some sort of infection like pneumonia that is the eventual cause of death, but cancer was still very much relevant, you know? So when thinking about cause of death, just recognize that all these things don't exist in their own individual categories. There's often huge crossover and you'll often have significant, um, significant crossover between conditions and causes of death as well. Yeah, and also it has to be noted that a lot of those things, like the people being noted as, oh, died of COVID, a lot of those do just go down as that in the moment because they're like, well, they died with COVID. We can't, you know, do the exact, be like, oh, we can't know if he died because of this or he died, whatever. And a lot of them do get corrected after the fact. You know, it's like they did that in America in a few different states and whatever. They're like, oh, there's higher or lower numbers because, you know, some people were dying with COVID, you know, rather than because of COVID. But like you said, it's one of these things where it's like, okay, you could have a heart attack and you can be like, okay, did you die of a heart attack? Oh, you tested positive for COVID. You know, was it the COVID that preceded the heart attack? You know, it's like, oh, you got, you know, you had a heart attack because you had some inflammation of the heart and you also had these poor uh, dietary habits leading up to that. And, you know, it, it's a very messy endeavor, right? So, and there's a website that actually, if you go to the show notes, um, that we post on our website and um, there's a website, our world in data. And they actually do a little piece on like why the death cert is required. And also like some little data going into that. It's quite nice. And um, I don't have it up here in front of me, but you can go go to it. Our world in data. It's actually a really cool website. It's nice and interactive shows you a few different graphs and whatever else, depending on what you want to look at. And um, so it is, it is quite informative. And also they, they talk about that death cert stuff, right? Now I just want to quickly go through, the next two slides on our uh, show notes, Gary, and then we'll get to the age adjusted stuff and finish up there. But just to quickly go through these as a total debt or total debts as a percentage, right? Then this is worldwide. Again, I'm going through this because I want you just to be thinking again, we've got percentages for all of these different things. Let's just quickly go through them so you can go, okay, some things are more or less likely to be issues for you, right? Now I'm just going to go through like communicable, maternal, neonatal, and nutritional disorders, right? They, in total, they count for 19.49% of deaths worldwide, right? And that's important to understand because again, when we're talking about that stuff, you know, you can kind of be afraid of certain communicable diseases because, you know, people are afraid of like the plague, right? But worldwide, communicable diseases are attributing or accounting for 19.49% of deaths. Now, it's again a little bit uh, hard to tell, hard to dial in on all this stuff because a lot of countries also just don't have data, 
right? They're just developing nations. They don't have the data for this. So this actually might be higher. It might be lower. Some of this is, you know, you're getting a snapshot of something from countries that don't take snapshots, <laughs> you know? Um, Non-communicable diseases account for 72.67% of all deaths, right? So again, remember that a lot of the stuff that we're talking about above, they're non-communicable diseases. And we'll talk about those in more, more detail in a second. And then injuries, 7.85%, right? Now, to break those down, because this is actually the smallest category, injuries, we're talking transport injuries, unintentional injuries, and then self-harm and violence. So for transport injuries, we've got 2.3% or yeah, 2.3%. For unintentional injuries, we've got 3.23%, right? Self-harm and violence, we've got 2.32%, right? So they're all hovering in around that 2 to 3% mark for all of those things, right? So that's not to say you just ignore them because you're like, oh, that's only a 2%er. It's still something to be aware of, right? Transport injuries, you can still do things to reduce your risk there, like wearing your seatbelt, you know? So it's like, you don't ignore that stuff just because it's a lower percentage. You still do the habits that lead to preventative stuff in that area, right? Then we'll get back onto communicable diseases, maternal, neonatal, and nutritional disorders. These are all just lumped together in this. And again, remember they accounted for 19.49%, so roughly 20%. The first thing we've got is respiratory infections and tuberculosis. So again, we, we touched on that above before. That's 6.85% of all deaths, right? And then we've got enteric infections. That's 3.31% of deaths. And you might be able to talk a little bit more about that, Gary, but in my understanding, that's all like stomach-related stuff, digestive-related stuff, you know? Um, and then we've got sac actually sexually transmitted infections you know 1.88% right and again you might be thinking oh that's only 1.88% it's not something i need to, to worry about but you still have to do the different health habits the still things that you can do to prevent your risk of that like and you don't just go oh sexually transmitted infections only account for less than 2% of deaths so i'm just not going to wear a condom when i'm having like casual sex right like obviously that's a stupid thing to do you still do the things that are going to help prevent those issues, right? And um, the next thing we've got is tropical diseases and malaria, 1.37%, right? Um, and malaria, you know, you could argue that the biggest killer of humans worldwide is the mosquito via malaria. However, realistically, the biggest killer of humans worldwide is probably other humans because we've got injuries in there. A lot of those are transport injuries and you're either doing that to yourself or someone's crashing into you, right? Um, but anyway, other infectious diseases, they're 1.57%. And then we've got maternal and neonatal disorders, which it seems a bit weird that they categorize these together, but either way, they're accounting for 4%. And then nutritional deficiencies, we've got 0.52%, right? So again, you can do your risk stratification and you can look at some of those, like you can obviously tick some of them off and be like, okay, well, I'm no longer a neonate, right? I'm also not a woman. So that risk of death is going down for me, right? And you can do that risk stratification for yourself. Nutritional deficiencies, like it's unlikely that this is going to be the case for you in the developed world. Now, obviously there are still some nutritional deficiencies that we need to be aware of, especially around certain nutrients and for certain individuals, especially if you've like inborn errors of metabolism, but we're not talking about like starvation here, right? So that's important to understand. All of those together, again, they account for less than 20%. So it's still a big number, 20%. You're not just going to go, if your boss said, I'm taking 20% of your wage, you're going to go, what the fuck, right? But apparently when the government does it, it's okay. But anyway, <laughs> that's a side tangent. Um, 
but either way, you know, you're not going to go, oh, 20%, I'm just going to ignore that, right? However, the big elephant in the room is the non-communicable diseases. So let's go through them because we've got some fucking heavy hitters in here, right? So we've got cardiovascular diseases, right? And these account for 31.59% of deaths, right? Cardiovascular disease, over 30% of the deaths, right? So if we were like, what is the biggest thing, the highest, highest yield item that we can focus on to improve health across the world? it would be tackling cardiovascular diseases. Gary, what is one of the diseases that we have on this list that is really, really influenced by preventative uh, habits that we can engage in? Probably heart disease. Yeah, so it makes sense. This is why we harp on about it all the time. This is why you also see government and non-government organizations talk about heart disease. You know, this is why they talk about it because if you could just get this number down, you forget about everything else, right? You know, if you did the, you know, Operation Warp Speed, where you're getting these vaccines made for COVID, if you took all of those resources and put them into cardiovascular disease, boom, 32% of the population or percentage of people that are dying are now not dying, right? Now, it wouldn't obviously get rid of everything because there are certain issues and whatever else. Um, But that's never going to happen because it's not a communicable disease. We also didn't know how fucking virulent COVID was, could have been like the plague, 2.0, Justinian plague, Augustinian plague, could have been fucking terrible for humans. We've had lots of those in the past. Um, so we didn't know. So we have to obviously, you know, focus on certain things. Um, but cardiovascular disease, right? So keep that in mind. Basically, the guts are 32%. Neoplasms, 16.43%. And then Gary, you might be able to speak to people about what neoplasms are. Cancers. <laughs> right i don't know why they do this but like again you will look at different data and you'll be like what the fuck is that what's what's going on here neoplasms we've got cancer right so cancer everyone gets scared of it because you're like oh well, and we've talked about it before where you're like oh i don't really know is there a huge amount that i can can really do for this um but either way we've got cancers at 16.43 percent right so even though everyone focuses on it and it's really scary, you're like, oh, cancer, you know, I got stage one, stage two, stage three, stage whatever cancer, cardiovascular disease is still a bigger killer, right? And some of the habits that we can engage in to prevent and, you know, help with cardiovascular disease, they also do potentially have an overlap with cancer prevention. Now, I'm, I don't really get into that realm because I think it's, a lot of it's just fucking bad luck and genetics, but regardless, right? Um, the next one then, we've got chronic respiratory diseases, 6.97%, again, roughly 7%. Digestive diseases, 4.11%. Neurological disorders, 5.84%. Substance abuse, 0.58% diabetes and kidney disease 4.55 percent skin diseases 0.18 percent musculoskeletal disorders 0.22 percent and then other non-communicable diseases are 2.22 percent right so the vast majority of the killers of humans are in this list 72.67 percent they're in this list cardiovascular diseases cancers right they're the big hitters in this you've also got again chronic respiratory diseases and looking at the highest numbers neurological disorders and then diabetes and kidney disease they seem to be the biggest hitters right so if you're like oh where should my focus be of all of these different things obviously you have to do your own risk stratification and your own whatever but cardiovascular disease cancer chronic respiratory diseases neurological disorders and then maybe diabetes that's where i'd be looking and i'd be going okay do i have a risk for any of these, whether it's because of you know your genetics, your environment, your job, whatever, 
look at those ones. There's the big killers. Oh, you actually don't have a risk for any of these, you know, because of whatever reasons. Like, okay, cool. Then you start doing the, the lower ticket items, right? You might be like, like Gary's on his own. Okay, cardiovascular disease is number one. Oh, there's cardiovascular disease in my family. Okay, so I need to really focus on this, right? So it's like, that's that's what you have to do. That's the kind of risk stratification that you have to do, right? Um, do you have anything to say on that, Gary? No, I think that's all pretty clear. You know, we kind of emphasized it previously. It was reflected in the data, both worldwide and in the US. Um, so it just comes back to, again, the convenience of having so many of the control of behaviors addressing so many of the biggest killers, you know? Hmm. And then if you do go to the show notes for this, I do also have another graph of number of deaths by cause, because this is a really nice one. It's from that our world and data. It's a very nice one because it shows you they'll just bar chart of like all of these different things. So you can see the relative risk of like, oh, this is how small this one that I think about is versus this is how big this other one that I wasn't thinking about is, you know? And again, just to order them there, cardiovascular disease, that's the number one. And this is number of deaths by cause in the world, 2019. So cardiovascular disease, that was 18.56 million, right? So again, that's a lot of people. Right. Again, remember when you're looking at these numbers, there's a face to all of those numbers. Right. So 18.56 million people. Right. Cancers, we've got 10.08 million. Right. Respiratory diseases are next. Digestive diseases, lower respiratory infections, neonatal disorders, dementia, diabetes, diarrheal disease, liver disease. And it goes on and on and on and on all the way down. Um, And like people focus on stuff like, you know, natural disasters. That's down there with a a measly, what is it, 6,075, you know, which is still, you know, 6,000 people. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, just kill 6,000 people every year. That's obviously not great. Um, but there are clearly higher priority ones, right? Now, conflict is another one that people focus on a lot, like, oh, you know, war is terrible. And it's like conflict is, what, 62,984, you know? It's like, okay, that's still a fucking lot of people in conflict, dying from conflict, but it's still not it pales in comparison to the 18.56 million people dying from cardiovascular disease, right? Now, again, this is why I'm glad I'm not in government because you have to make the decision where you're like, do I put this money towards my military budget or do I put this money towards my cardiovascular disease preventative healthcare budget, right? And if you're in a country like America, you know, a lot of that goes to the military and you could argue that's a good thing because it means that other countries in the world don't have to... uh, pay for their military you know like they what is it uh germany if they were to actually commit their uh gdp i think it's three percent of their gdp you're supposed to have as a military budget and i don't think they do it and like they would have one of the largest standing armies in the world if they were to actually commit that to their budget but they don't right and the reason they don't do it is because they know there's american bases in germany america is not going to let those bases fucking fall into anyone else's hand so they have got effectively this fantastic strategy where they're just like america you can be our our army you know like ireland does it as well like we don't put a huge amount of money into our military budget now obviously we're a neutral country but we effectively let britain you know britain are the ones that defend our skies you know like stuff like that they're like oh the raf is going to defend ireland if for whatever reason there's a war you know which is funny back uh was it the around Brexit, when people were like, oh, well, uh, Ireland, the EU isn't going to allow our British airplanes fly over Ireland. And I was like, who the fuck's going to shoot them out of the sky? The RAF? The British are going to shoot British airplanes out of the sky. Doesn't make sense. But anyway, that's a fucking tangent. Um, The final thing I want to touch on, Gary, is talking about the age-adjusted stuff. And maybe we'll just focus on the top five here. 
but also we'll bring it down to the category of 15 to 24, 25 to 34, and then maybe 35 to 44, because that's generally our audience. Um, and if you do want to look at this further and in more depth, you can either go to the CDC website, this is for 2017 for the United States, or you can just go to our website and it's, it's just linked there as well and um, the show notes for, for this episode. <clears throat> um, but anyway, you have that up in front of you, Gary. Do you want to dive into this a bit? Yeah, so the, the age groups, as you mentioned, are 15 to 24, 25 to 34, and 35 to 44, because that covers the vast majority of our listenership. And in that 15 to 24 category, um, in terms of leading causes of death, again, this is 2017 in the United States, you've got unintentional injury as number one, then you've got suicide, then homicide, then cancers, and then heart disease, okay? So the really important thing there is that the first three and obviously, the, the, the way that these things are categorized differs between the different sources of data that we're looking at, which is why there's a little bit of a discrepancy. But unintentional injury, suicide and homicide are all things that you probably don't typically think of when you're thinking about how you can improve your health. You know, you're probably worried about your body weight and you're worried about trying to control your cholesterol and blood pressure, etc. Whereas unintentional injury, if someone happens to be you know, recklessly driving, drunk driving or something, and they, you know, hit you while you're driving, then you're dead. You know, there you go. Um, you have so, to remember like kids, like 15 to 24 year olds, they're the ones that are out walking on the streets and doing whatever. And they're also, you know, new drivers are maybe not able to ex- like deal with a, an oncoming truck or oncoming car or whatever as effectively as someone older. Yeah. So, I mean, not, not, not always very preventable. I suppose the most preventable one there um, is probably suicide because it factors into some of the health behaviors that we discuss um, all of the time, really, in terms of managing one's overall health, inclusive of your mental health. Um, Healthcare obviously still plays a role there because depression screening is a thing, depression treatment, identification of suicidality, thoughts of self-harm, et cetera. And referral to appropriate services. So that's all clearly something that there's still a very strong role of healthcare in. Um, whereas with homicide, clearly a lot less difficult to, or a lot more difficult rather, to predict and prevent. Okay, so there's an element that you just can't control, unfortunately. Um, malig- malignancies, as we said, cancers are ve- very important there as well. Um, you see cancers in, across all age groups, the interesting thing is that you'll see that can- our cancer and then heart disease are much lower in this group. And that's obviously because these diseases are typically those diseases of, of affluence, of long life, of you know being able to live a long life. You're at higher risk of all these diseases, um, particularly with the lifestyle that we live. Um, and also like a lot of the stuff that, you know, genetically that's going to come about, like your genetics only really care about you reaching a reproductive age. You know, they're like, okay, reach a reproductive age, reproduce and then i don't really care if you die you know like that's what your genetics are kind of thinking which is kind of fucked up right but so a lot of these things is cancers or whatever will come about in older age because they haven't been weeded out you know they're not something that's going to give you a cancer when you're three years old and as a result get removed from the the gene pool because you're not able to reproduce right so there is that factor as well but like you said a lot of these are kind of progressive in terms of certain things, certain habits you engage in, in your earlier life do then influence your, your disease risk later in life. Yeah. And, and even though they're in the top five, the absolute numbers of deaths in, a, in these, in these lower 
age categories are, are very low in general. So you're talking about 900 deaths a year from heart disease versus 650,000 um, total, you know, or 520,000 in the 65 plus category. So that's the reason we talk so much about this is that these types of illnesses, the non-communicable diseases have long latency periods. They develop over multiple decades and you don't have symptoms for the vast majority of that period of time. But by the time you actually have an event, something that could be a threat to life, it's then too late to be able to um, just eradicate it, all the risk that has accumulated. So that's why it's so important to be aware at a young age, even if it's not likely to kill you this year or even this decade. You see a similar thing there with 25 to 34. Again, it's pretty much the exact same unintentional injury, suicide, homicide, heart disease, and then your cancers again. And the only difference there that the, num the absolute number is greater. So that's the case across the board. As you go up in age, obviously more people die. 35 to 44, unintentional injury still takes the lead, but cancers and heart disease are now second and third. So you can see that age-related increase in the incidence of cancer and heart disease and the events associated with those diseases. And then suicide and homicide are fourth and fifth in those cases. So again, it's, something, it's been a theme throughout this episode, heart disease and cancer, both heavily related to age and influenced by lifestyle. So we can't, unfortunately, stop aging. So our lifestyle plays a very strong role here. 100%. I suppose we'll just, to finish this out, if we do look at the top two killers, top two diseases that kill in the 45 to 54, again, we've got those cancers, heart disease, right? 55 to 64, cancers, heart disease. 65 plus, now it's heart disease is the major killer and then cancers, right? And to give those numbers like some or some weight. Now, obviously the 65 plus encompasses like, you know, potentially like 30 years of an age group or, or more. So it is obviously going to be bigger than a smaller nine year or 10 year age bracket, but either way, heart disease, you know, in the 65 plus, like you said earlier on 520,000, 519,000 and some change. Um, and then malignant neoplasms or cancers, we got 42,000, 40, 427,000 896 right so again roughly 430,000 so they're quite, quite big killers right and again the stuff that you do to prevent that from happening is the stuff that you're doing now right and so you can't just think of the biggest killers that are killing you or your age group right now you also have to look like two or three age groups into the future and then go okay am I making sure I'm protecting myself against that right now again you can go through this document yourself you can look at all the different things yourself it's really eye-opening in a lot of cases and also it helps us create better content for one because we're like okay well if we're going to help people with this stuff you know we need to be making sure we have good content related to this stuff but also it helps you as an individual going oh how do i actually live a long productive life what is likely to kill me you know but anyway gary do you have any final closing thoughts because in the next episode what we're going to do is go through some of those biggest killers and then talk about what you can actually do, like the preventative methods. Like right now, we've just been talking about, you know, what actually kills you, right? Where should you be thinking about? Like what, where should your focus be? But our focus should actually be on the stuff that we can do, right? You don't actually need to focus on the actual things. You need to focus on what you can do as an individual, right? Um, but anyway, Gary, do you have any kind of closing thoughts? Nope, I'm done. Fantastic. So wrap it up then. So as always, guys, we really appreciate it when you share the podcast. So if you do enjoy it, 
and you check out the show notes, you think they're useful, share it on your social media, share it with a friend, share it in the family WhatsApp group and make sure that people are aware of the content that we're putting out. Along with that, we of course have coaching spaces available. Um, we've got a coaching team of six coaches, inclusive of myself and Patty. We each have our own respective uh, specialities. So if you would like to work with our team, whether it be on your body composition, your performance, maybe you would like to uh, rehab an old injury that's been bothering you, whatever it happens to be, we can hopefully help you with that. You can see the information about that in the description box below. We're always putting out free content. So make sure that you subscribe to our newsletter or email list. You'll find the link to that below as well. And also make sure that you're following us on Instagram at Triage Method and also the individual coaches on there as well, because otherwise you're missing out on a lot of free information that is really valuable if you're trying to manage all of the things that we discuss in this podcast. So we've talked about the importance of prevention, your diet, your exercise, etc. We have lots of practical information that can help you execute on that on our social media. Fantastic, Gary. Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. And if you do, as always, have any questions, comments, issues, whatever, the place to go is our Facebook group. That's where we talk about this stuff. If there's, you know, oh, we're recording this episode, we'll talk about that. Oh, we've recorded this Facebook group. So get in the Facebook group if you aren't already. And again, it is linked below. Other than that, I have nothing else to say. And I hope everyone enjoys their morning, week, evening, whatever time you're listening to this. Maybe you're listening to this 400 years into the future. I don't know. Hope you have a fantastic life. I know Gary does as well. And uh, peace out. Bye.